everybody. Chris Webster here to talk about one of the latest supporters to the Archaeology Podcast Network, The Motley Fool. Now, I've been investing in the stock market through various applications for a few years now, and everybody who's listening to this can benefit from that sort of investment for the long-term financial planning. And also, I know the hosts of these podcasts can benefit because as archaeologists, like none of us get retirement, <laughs> we all have to kind of fend for ourselves. So investing in the stock market is a good idea, but not everybody can do it. And look, we get it. The market is complicated and confusing, and to many of us, it simply doesn't make sense. In fact, where do you even start? Take all of the guesswork out of it with the Motley Fool Stock Advisor. The Motley Fool has been around for over 25 years and has been spot on in recommending some of the world's most important companies before they hit the big time. I'm talking about Amazon, Tesla, Netflix, Starbucks, all before they exploded in value. With their easy to use and super informative service, Stock Advisor, you could join the ranks before they potentially find the next big thing. After all, their average stock recommendation is up over 400% as of April 10th, 2023. And no need to be intimidated by financial jargon or market complexities. As the name suggests, these guys don't take themselves too seriously. Now, finances, that's a different story. Their friendly and relaxed approach has helped over 700,000 people move closer to financial independence, all while beating the market and having fun. New members can access Stock Advisor for only $89 for their first year, a full $110 off the full list price. Don't sit on the sidelines and think about what could have happened. Visit fool.com slash APN to start your investing journey today. That's $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. So again, check the link in the show notes of this episode. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to Tea Break Time Travel, where every month we look at a different archaeological object and take you on a journey into their past. Hello and welcome to episode 16 of Tea Break Time Travel. I am your host, Matilda Siebrecht, and today I'm savouring a pina colada tea. I thought, well, you know, if the weather's going to be acting as if I'm in the tropics, then I may as well drink a cocktail tea to celebrate. And joining me on my tea break today is Ronya Lau, an archaeologist who specialises in ancient textiles. Are you also on tea today or what are you drinking? I'm actually not a tea drinker. I'm mostly drinking Classic. water all the time. So I have a glass of water next to me. <laughs> Fair enough. That's typical. I, I don't know if you've listened to previous episodes, but the, fir- the very first episode I recorded was with Ashley from the Candles episode. Oh, yeah. And she said, I don't drink hot beverages. And I was going, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. But you're similar. Also no coffee, no hot chocolate. No, I'm not actually. No, I'm just a water drinker. And it's quite warm in Germany at the moment. So yes. water is really refreshing now. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. And out of curiosity, seeing as you're German, I imagine water has to be with bubbles then? Um, yeah, we have uh, we have like this uh, self-made bubble machine. I don't know. Ah. <laughs> so we are always prepared. <laughs> yeah. I remember being really confused the first time I went to Germany and I just asked for, you know, a cla- like a normal water and they came and it had <laughs> bubbles in. I was going, what? And that's, yeah. <laughs> we laugh. <laughs> it's very good. <laughs> it's, it's even if you go into the shops and you look at the water bottles, classic water, like classic mm-hmm. water is with mm-hmm. bubbles. Like, <laughs> and it's like no, yeah. no. <laughs> Classic water is is flat anyway. One of those, one of those standard things. As I mentioned, you are uh, an archaeologist. What first tempted you, should we say, to get into archaeology? How did you start on this path? 
Oh yeah, that's a, that's a great story actually. <laughs> well, <laughs> me personally, I I didn't know what to do after school, so I was just really thinking about uh, working first. And I started actually with a living history first. Uh, so most archaeologists also do living history, <laughs> yeah. uh, and I thought, well, this is such a nice topic. I want to learn more about it. I want to, you know, dive deep and uh, yeah. And then I started to look out for. I don't know, for some um, jobs. And I started working in archaeology first before I started studying it. Really? Um, yeah, and like, I was looking in a, in a um, I was digging um, with some, oh. um, you know, just small uh, excavations in, in Berlin. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, this is also really nice. I like also the practical part and the theoretical part about it. So maybe I was just uh, start uh, studying archaeology. And so I started prehistoric archaeology in Berlin and i thought this is really great i want to do that and then of course you need to specialize to something and then i thought well i'm really good in textiles and sewing and crafting things so uh, this will be my topic (laughs) no fair enough and at the moment you are doing your uh, phd correct Yes, I'm a PhD student at the moment. I am at the Ruhr University in Bochum, actually, so I'm still living in Berlin. Hmm. And I'm also doing my PhD thesis about um, textiles, Iron Age textiles okay, wow. in So Austria. yeah, it really did grip you if you've managed to go all the way through to, to PhD level yeah. <laughs> to, um, to do it. And I'm curious though, because so you said that you worked in archaeology like as an f- excavator, but you were able to work even without an archaeology did you have to do a particular training or i'm just, i'm just curious personally how that how that works yeah i mean i was a bit you know just going straight forward <laughs> to, <laughs> to, to ask them yo yo hey can i do like an internship you know just yeah. wanted to have a look at it and i said yeah i mean you can have an internship for two weeks i mean we don't pay you anything but you can you can yeah. see how it goes for you we teach you some stuff and that worked pretty well actually <laughs> so okay. i was just asking huh. yeah can you oh, take me in? Nice. That's funny, actually. My first ever excavation job was pretty similar. <laughs> but I basically just, I did, I had done my undergrad degree, but I basically, I had emailed so many people, also in Germany, funnily enough, and everyone was going, oh, no, sorry. No, we don't have work. No, no, no. And then, but luckily at some point, someone would be like, oh, no, we don't have work, but try this person, they might have work. So uh-huh. then in the next email, I'd be able to be like, so-and-so recommended I contact you, being like, you know, pretending that we were best buddies. Um, and uh, eventually I sort of got through to someone who said, oh, no, we don't have any work, but we have a tour of our like excavation this weekend. Do come along and have a look, you know, might be interesting to you. So I went along and basically indeed cornered them and <laughs> said, please give me a job. And I think <laughs> just having me physically there in front of them, they they couldn't say no. So, uh, <laughs> so not that we're recommending to any of our listeners <laughs> that this is the way you should get an archaeology job. You should be you know, respectful. And, uh, yeah. sure. But uh, excellent. If you could travel back in time, after all, this is too great time travel, where would you go and why? Yeah, I thought about this question earlier. And I must say, uh, through all the, you know, times I want to have a look at it. Stone Age, the Bronze Age, the Iron Age, the Middle Ages. So I have a small glimpse in you know, into everything because I'm so curious, you know, as prehistoric archaeologists, the more we go back in time, the less we know about societies and people and stuff because, you know, the finds are getting more sparse and everything. So, mm-hmm. of course, going back in time 
very far is probably the most interesting thing about it. Yeah, so mm. Stone Age and Bronze Age would be like, I think, the best. Mm, fair. So like a, yeah. a, a tour, like one of these, you know, bus tours where you get off and <laughs> yeah. check, check each other things. <laughs> it's not a pub crawl, but a time crawl. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, let's face it, if they ever did invent time travel, that's probably there was there's bound to be some sure. business that, that starts yeah. doing that. So uh, okay. Well hopefully, <laughs> fingers crossed. Although of course they probably haven't invented time travel because I feel like we'd know about it by now, unfortunately. But mm-hmm. uh, okay, okay. So Stone Age, Bronze Age, fair enough. Which is funny because you're doing i think iron age yes i'm doing iron age at the moment but of course as a tech psychologist you just get everything that is here so i'm not i'm not really specialized into into one time but of course as my phd is dealing with iron age textiles and also my master thesis i'm quite into this time period yeah. mm, okay well i think mm, we'll, we'll come back to that um in, <laughs> in, in later in the podcast i think because otherwise we'll spend far too much time uh fangirling about uh, ancient textiles so uh thank you very much for joining my tea break today yeah and of course before we look at today's object we first indeed have to journey back in time this time we're going back to around 5000 bc so kind of halfway on the on the tour bus i guess and unfortunately our navigation software is a bit broken so we're not really sure where we are geographically but it doesn't really matter actually for this episode. We do, however, find ourselves in the middle of a small but very busy settlement. There's a huge longhouse, a figure skinning a deer using a flint blade to slice the hide away from the gleaming muscle beneath. Nearby, there's another figure stoking the fire in a wide hearth. Next to them, yet another figure crouches next to a large rock, bent over their task in quiet concentration. We edge our way further forward and see that they're cutting grooves into small sections of what looks like a deer leg bone using a flint blade. Once the groove is halfway through the material, the bone is flipped and a mirroring groove is carved into the other side. When it's almost deep enough that you can see some light from the fire shining through, the figure uses a wedge to split the bone apart into tiny slivers, which are then pierced at one end before being scraped with a fresh tool to create a tiny sharp point. So today we are looking at sewing needles, not necessarily bone needles specifically, but Of course, that is what we see through the majority of uh, the archaeological time period, I can imagine. So we'll get into the details soon. But first, of course, we have to look at the most asked questions on the internet. And there weren't actually that many because, yeah, and I had to use bone needle for this because if you just use needle, then all kinds of things come up about modern sewing techniques and everything. So, And even then, there weren't actually that many. And they all basically asked the same two questions, which were, First of all, what were bone needles used for? I don't know if you can elaborate on this, Ronya. <laughs> well, that's a broad question. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm into this topic of textile production and stuff. So this this question is like, duh. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what are bone needles for? Of course, mostly suing something. But of course, like, you said it in your, in your nice uh, surrounding <laughs> first part, like, there is a needle which has a hole at the end. So because of course we have other needle types too, which don't have holes at the end. So you have mm-hmm. to put a thread to it. So like needles with a hole attached with a thread, they are mostly for sewing, uh, attaching something A, fabric, or something B, something else to another. They can be used for embroidery and netting and stitching and something else so everything that is somehow related with a thread and combining 
something with each other. So mm-hmm. that's the, <laughs> yeah. I think that's the very plain answer. It's to a pretty simple answer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, uh, uh, that's nice. We like simple answers. <laughs> Next one, slightly more, I, I liked the wording of this one as well. It was always, when was the bone needle invented? <laughs> Which I like oh, the yeah. use of the word invented. Not sure you can uh, provide an answer for this one. <laughs> well, I mean, yes, if, if something gets invented, so we have to think about a time period where a needle was not used and then at a certain point it eventually was <laughs> boom there was a needle we don't yeah. know where it comes from but there isn't and um, i mean needles are one of the oldest tools uh, we know of mankind so um, i have looked it up actually and uh, have had a look at what were the earliest evidence um, of needles we have so there's this needle from the Siburu cave, it's in, in Africa, and it's also named as the earliest sewing needle, and it's also made out of bone, and was dated uh, 59,000 BCE. So, um, of course, Africa holds, of course, a lot of very old tools dated very long ago, so this is not an not an unusual find, actually. So, okay, yeah, some, some bone needles in Africa sounds very plausible. But then we also have some um, some needles uh, from the Denisova cave, which is in, in Russia and it's 50,000 years old. So there are also very old needles hmm. we can find here. So where mankind is, I think there are also needles. Uh, we can also think about, I think this is also a question later with the needles and the sewing and the clothing connected to each other. So when was the first clothing invented? And I think the the question, when was the first bone needle invented, goes really well together. So, Mm. yeah. And because indeed you always have this image, like the cartoons and everything of, you know, cavemen, prehistoric man, Mm. just with skins draped over them, kind of Mm -hmm. like a half a lion just draped over (laughs) over (laughs) them sides. But do you, and and again, we're probably going to go into this in a bit more detail afterwards, but we have a bit of time now. Do you think that that would have been the first kind of clothing that it would have just been draped over or could do you think indeed it was always sewn from the beginning it's not always necessary to sew clothing so we also have like later for example from the iron age later evidence that there are also clothes which are just draped around the body and are fastened with you know maybe a belt or with some fibula Mm -hmm. and stuff so you don't need to sew clothing Mm -hmm. Mm, but we have some if we think about like leather clothing or clothing made out of some other fibers, plant fibers and stuff, which are not really spun, but maybe also like, um, you know, braided and stuff and uh, leather soon to each other is probably yeah, plausible for also stone age uh, people. And this gives us a very big, you know, insight about technology and, and dressing themselves having an idea about how I want to look, how I want to cover myself, what are the reasons for covering ourselves, you know, because I think there was a, a well study which sort of people can survive naked, like around 21 degree temperature outside. So <laughs> if Stone Age people lived in, uh, of course, in colder climate, they need to cover themselves just to protect themselves from the environment. But also clothing is just not a protection, but also... Uh, shows our social status, our uh, where we belong to, which is our ethnicity, maybe where we, you know, where we are in our, yeah, family and surrounding. So just 
clothing and producing it has always some kind of a meaning behind it, not just a practical reason. And so I also think people may, may be very conscious about how they create their clothing and spend also time on it <laughs> because sewing takes time, yeah. uh, most of it, but they're willing to do it and to make also really nice clothing and decorating it, embroidering it, sewing some decoration on its shelves and muscles and, you know, just making nice clothing, even if they are just for protecting against the environment. We have some evidence uh, from graves from the Stone Age where we have a body laying there, but no clothing because, you know, it's organic material. Um, it's not surviving that far, that long. But we have some some evidence of embroidered uh, shells on, on the body. And, you know, they had to be attached onto something. So this was probably part of the clothing. Mm. And this also... <laughs> must have been sewn onto onto the clothing yeah which that reminds me well. a bit of i remember meeting uh teresa camper i met her through exarch she does a lot mm -hmm. of leather working she does a lot of rep, like uh, rep replication of prehistoric leather clothes oh yeah um so sort of early like mesolithic and early mm -hmm. neolithic and indeed she says a similar thing to what you were just saying that mm -hmm. clothing would not have just been functional it would have also been beautiful and so she yeah. makes these really gorgeous pieces of clothing and i think that that's a really interesting idea because so many times if people even replicate you know clothing from the past like if they're doing living history it is very simple and it's very mm -hmm. crude and it's you know which it wouldn't necessarily have been like that, I guess. No, no. Yeah, that's that's very common misconception about like prehistoric people in general. They need to be <laughs> yeah, dressed really, you know, Alex said crude and uh, simple and not well done, just, you know. Mm. But, yeah. but that's not the case. And I'm really into telling people, we love beautiful stuff. You know, I'm also, I'm, you know, I dress nicely if I want. Yeah. <laughs> that's just, you know, mm, that's fine. And people did that also a couple of thousand years ago. Yeah. And when you do your reenactment, just going briefly back to this, mm -hmm. which sort of time periods do you generally focus on? Do you also make your own clothing for that? Do you also have to think of these things when you're making it? Mm, yes. <laughs> so, I'm doing living history uh, for now 16 years. So I have quite a long time you know, going through all the time periods. Wow, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have like recreated clothing from, of course, the Iron Age, from uh, Slovenia, mm -hmm. from Austria, uh, from the Iron Age in Estonia, from, I'm starting now, Bronze Age, also from Northern uh, Germany now. I have a lot mm -hmm. of medieval stuff because we also have some uh, medieval groups here and I also work uh, in a museum village. So medieval stuff is necessary, but mm -hmm. um, differences from the 11th century, the 12th, the 13th, and the 14th century, I also make. Wow. So I have like um, most of the Middle Ages. Okay. <laughs> wow. You'll be all set for your time travel trip. You'll have well, everything. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, I hope I don't point out in the time travel, like, hmm, she's from the future. No. Uh, <laughs> right. And you always have to ask yourself, like, what is my intention? Do I want to hand sew everything by myself? Do I want to plant dye everything by myself? Do I want to hand weave everything by myself? Hmm. So you have to make some some cuts, of course, and, hmm. you know, don't spend so much money and time on it. But of course, this is what my my hobby is, what I love to do at the weekends and what my where I put all my passion into it. So 
Um, I mostly do all of the stuff myself. And if I can't do it because I'm, I didn't learn it, I let people do it who can um, help me with that, with that, for example, like dyeing things and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so my, I hope my quality is always pretty high, but I'm also um, just learning, learning by doing all the time. For example, for the Middle Ages, you, you see other depictions of people and say, oh, I haven't seen this one. Maybe I have to add this and that or have to cancel this because we don't have so much evidence. And, you know, it's always work in progress. Mm. It, living history is never finished. Mm. <laughs> so, well, which is great. Yeah. You have a hobby for life. <laughs> That's totally fine. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Well, we've gone slightly off uh, off topic, but as you said, clothing mm-hmm. and needles are pretty much kind of hand in hand, so to speak. So it is important mm-hmm. to talk about both. And we'll talk about them again in a moment. But uh, for now, we will have a very quick break and we will be back soon. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com listen. Shopify.com listen. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Welcome back. So we know a little bit more about needles and about sort of clothing, but maybe we can talk about it a little bit more, um, seeing as we have our specialist textile archaeologist Ronya here with us. So we mentioned already that the earliest needles were probably from bone, but you also mentioned that there's a lot of organic material that gets lost. So could they have been made from any other material apart from bone? Uh, Yeah, sure. I mean, bone is eventually one of the most surviving organic finds but it could be plausible that early may also be out of wood i don't know to start like preparing something and if you don't need to point the needle through something really strong or harsh um, maybe wood will also work yeah but you know the organic stuff i saw a post i think a few days ago where someone was sewing leather shoes and they used of course an awl to make a hole first for sewing it mm. and then they attached the thread to a what is it a boar a boar hair like the very strong part of the oh, boar like the bristles the bristle the... yeah right the bristle. wow yeah and they attached the thread to it like splicing end to end and then they started sewing uh, the shoes with a spore bristle and wow. I was so this is the first time I saw this. So that was really 
interesting because of course a bone bristle it does not have a hole at the end of it where you can push the thread through so you have to attach it otherwise but that's a very interesting thing because there are so many different kinds of material you can use and i know from also uh, other indigenous groups that they may use other animal hair or pointy stuff for example i saw also something from it's in german stachelschwein do you know Porcupine, oh yeah, Porcupine, porcupine. yeah, Yeah, and you can also use uh, those uh, (laughs) those uh, to sue. The quills or or whatever they're called, yeah. 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 Wow. So there are very different also local and regional exceptions uh, where you can use other stuff to point something (laughs) into something and push a thread through. So um, it's not only necessarily a needle like we would think of it, so... Yeah, just be creative. And if you don't have a needle, just use something else. Mm-hmm. Which it goes back to this whole thing, slight tangent here, but <laughs> because, um, <laughs> because uh, so a friend of mine, well, colleague, friend at uh, Leiden University did her master's thesis on looking at uh, antler not even antler tools, but random bits of antler that had been from a site that had just been classified as kind of antler, you know, debris, mm-hmm. like not, not, not tools, just bits of antler offcuts. And she did use wear on them. Mm. She did a load of experiments doing various different things and then compared the use wear traces that she saw on those experimental pieces with use wear on the on the antler um, and bone bits. And she, I think for a lot of them, indeed, they were just random bits of antler. They didn't have any signs of use, but quite a lot of them, you could see very clear signs of use. So this idea of like, oh, well, just because it doesn't look like what we think mm-hmm. that sort of tool should look like, it's overlooked. And I mean, that's similar in this case then. Like you wouldn't yeah. necessarily look at a porcupine needle and a uh, quill and be like, oh, that was clearly used for sewing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, sure. And um, of course, you said antler is also, because antler and bone are uh, quite similar, but they can mm-hmm. also be used as uh, early needles. Mm-hmm. And if we go from the from the organic material away we later have also like metal needles of course it would start with copper and with maybe bronze needles and then later to iron iron Mm -hmm. and when so they they would have started with with copper needles but would they have been still quite strong i'm just thinking of like copper wire you know when you and if you it's very Mm -hmm. easy to to, very malleable but i guess that wouldn't have been what the needles would have been made of i don't know i haven't tried it with copper needles but i can also think like i've tried it with um with bronze needles and Mm -hmm. uh when you first start sewing or using them they will bend very easily so we tried uh, heating them up so they will get sturdier Maybe like it's a, also it annealing, yeah, right? The, we'll work with copper. Yeah. I don't know. I haven't tried it, but um, yeah. we have some early copper needle finds from Egypt, so they have to be used in some kind of way. Yeah. Okay. And do you know how you said you've used bronze? So would they have been cast those needles, or are they like hammered hmm. out? <laughs> yeah, that's actually a good question. I mean, if you want to hammer it out, you have to make some kind of a. <sighs> I I don't know actually. <laughs> Casting could be a possibility, but it's a needle is very fine, and the needles we also have from the Iron Age that are made out of iron later, I think they are not cast. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Okay, yeah, well, because I was thinking that would I was, be really I, I'm, hard. I'm thinking about yeah, I'm thinking about <laughs> you know um some some fines, but no. 
And with yeah. these early, the early copper and the early bronze needles, so would they would have been, would they have looked like what we think of as a needle? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they, they, and, yeah they look very typically like a, like a modern day sewing needle. A bit bigger, of course, because mm. Mm, it's very hard to, to, to create the hole at the end. But, um, you know, the technique was really nice. They look like needles you can easily sew with. And I also tried some, some bronze uh, needles, which were recreated, and I was sewing with them. Works pretty fine. They're a bit bigger, of course, so you need to <laughs> be strong to push those through right, the textiles. Yeah. But it works. It works pretty fine. Yeah. Okay. So that seems like there hasn't actually been much variation at all in needles. Like they seem pretty universally mm-hmm. standard. Do you do you know if there's any variation in kind of how needles developed in different places, in different regions, in different times? <laughs> no, like the problem also with those needles, if they are very fine and also made out of metal, they dissolve very easily. So yeah, if they okay. are preserved, they may have, you know, re- really a big bunch of uh, rust around them, or maybe mm-hmm. they're just too fragile or just dissolve into the earth because it's not a... Most of the time, we have metal objects who are very big, you know, like buckles or fibulas mm. and stuff. So, you know, they preserve quite okay. But the needle is very fine. It's not a lot of material and they are gone very easily. So it's also very difficult to to find them and then, you know, to identify them as a needle mm. and then to do research on them. There's not much going on. So I hope in the future that some somebody <laughs> will deal uh, much more about those uh, sewing needles actually yeah that's true yeah if anyone's listening in who's interested in doing metal uh, archaeology of metallurgy or anything then yeah because yeah. true i can imagine they're so small that it's hard to it would be hard to see them as a needle especially if they're covered in so much corrosion yeah Right. Yeah. I mean, the the technique gets better and the needles will get finer. You know, the holes will get smaller because like this thread will also be smaller. So you need to have smaller, mm. uh, smaller needles and stuff. So they get just better, finer mm. and thinner and better and sturdier, for example, because if you later also use iron, your needle will eventually last longer. Which and I get uh, modern needles are from from st- steel. Most yeah, of the time. is that correct? Most of the steel, yeah, sure. Because <laughs> I, I, I do a lot of sewing, but uh, but no, but that's really interesting. And the thread you mentioned there, so mm-hmm. because indeed, I imagine that the use you mentioned already that that clothing would not have always needed needles necessarily, because you talked about the fact that some are some are wrapped. But indeed, you would assume that once a needle is being used, some kind of thread is is also yeah. being used. What would that thread have looked like? Well, the sewing threads we know also from the Bronze Age to the Middle Ages, they are mostly plied uh, threads, maybe out of wool or other plant fibers, maybe ply because they are more sturdy, they are more stronger. You know, ply is a thread uh, made out of two single threads. So right, I was about to ask. Don't know what a ply <laughs> what is. is a ply? <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, yes. So if, if you spin just one fiber or just, just one thread, uh, it's not sturdy enough. So you combine two of those threads uh, to one. So it will, you know, be stronger. And we will see this very often as a sewing thread. And um, they can get really, really fine, you know, also since the Bronze Age, like the spinning techniques, they evolve and they get better. And the people who are spinning, you know, all their lives, they're really good at it. It's a very, you know, it's a very nice craft. Yeah. And most of the time, the sewing threads 
apply and were used, you know, to combine the clothing mm -hmm. and the textiles. Yeah. And I'm because you're mentioning sort of spinning and the fact they're creating their own thread. I'm just thinking the amount of times that I you know, I have like a long off cut when I'm sewing or if I, I've pulled too strong and it snaps or something like that. And it's annoying, mm -hmm. but it's like, oh, well, I've got this other massive spool of thread that I bought from the craft <laughs> shop here. It's totally fine. Do you think that the practice of sewing would have been different back there, back then, if you'd have had to be really careful about your resources or do you think it would have been similar? Yeah. I mean, we eventually like, we have to recreate an environment where we have to think about how much time people spend on spinning and creating textiles. So this is not something we can easily say because we don't, we don't ask the people, but we find most of the time, top number one archaeological find is always a, a spindle war. Mm. And the amount of spindle walls we find in settlements and in, in burials is, is very huge actually. So it must have been, an everyday task to spin thread either for sewing or for weaving a textile. So of course it is time consuming and it is a, uh, it is a very precious resource, but I mean, I am also sewing a long time, so I am very carefully and it, if you get better <laughs> and more conscious about what you do, uh, mm -hmm. it doesn't happen so much that you rip a thread and you just, mm -hmm. okay. But of course, the thought about your resources and also recycling stuff you may not need anymore is more present, I think, in the prehistoric societies than in our society nowadays. So if you have some thread and maybe if it's just a meter or something, you maybe keep it and just don't throw it away and just attach it to somewhere else. And um, we see it also in textiles if they are recycled if something will be reused or something others will be attached and you know some holes get repaired and stuff with other thread colors and other thread um, diameters and stuff so it's always a collection <laughs> of mm. what people uh, had on their hand as a resource you know mm -hmm. yeah. and if the sheep were shaved and you don't you need to have to wait <laughs> for the wool to grow back you have to use something else if you don't have anything yeah yes true true and actually i can uh, i can contribute something here because um i uh, did a lot of research on on bone needles from just from inuit though so i don't really know much about the rest of the world mm -hmm. but uh from from paleo inuit so prehistoric inuit and there's there were some really cool ones in the archaeological collections where you could see that the hole had broken mm -hmm. of the needle, but then they just made another one below it <laughs> or mm. that they'd, they'd, the tip had obviously broken off, but then they'd sharpened it <laughs> to make it. So in the end you have sure. a tiny needle <laughs> because it's really short because it's obviously been mm -hmm. resharpened so much, but that goes with what you were saying of just there's a lot more recycling, a lot more reuse of existing materials going on. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think it's very interesting. And going back a little bit to what we were talking about earlier as well and sort of how prehistoric clothing would have looked like, because of course it doesn't really survive that much. So how do we know what it what it looked like? Do we have a lot of uh, archaeological evidence for it? Is it just a lot of guesswork? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, yes, of course, as a textile archaeologist, we have to look at every other evidence we have. So, of course, if we are lucky, we have some textile finds or some organic other finds, which is not necessarily a textile, but also leather, the fur or plant fiber finds from 
somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, uh, all those organic finds need to be preserved in a, in a very special condition, you know, mm-hmm. even if it's dry or wet, for example, or if we have some uh, salt, <laughs> which mm-hmm. is my specialty because I'm, I'm working on textiles from a salt mine. Uh, so if these are, you know, given those um, textiles may, uh, may preserve quite uh, well. But mm-hmm. if we don't have them, we have to look at other stuff. For example, like I said, the spindle wards, if we have textile productions in a settlement or from a burial, some evidence there. If we have traces of imprints in pottery, maybe this is also a good a good way to identify textiles because maybe the pottery was was formed and put onto a to a mat, for example, to dry, and then you have sometimes the imprint of um, some weave or something on the bottom of oh. the uh, pottery. <laughs> so, uh, so the very secondary. Yeah, that's <laughs> uh, really fine. <cool>, right? <laughs> we have to look at. We, if we are lucky, we have some figurines, maybe which were carved somewhere out of. I don't know, antler or, you know, wood or stone, for example. And you can see on the figurines, maybe also from the Stone Age, some, some patterns, you know, from mm-hmm. on the head or maybe on the body. And if they're just some triangles and stuff, like really broad patterns. But we may think, okay, this might be a hint that the person who, who carved this figurine thought about clothing and what the clothing may have looked like or what was it decorated like and stuff. So there are also some hints for uh, clothing. And if we have some pictural sources also from the Iron Age, some early um, pictures of people from the Situla art, uh, where we see in, in metal objects some some scenes of a of a you know of a party and they're handing uh, wine to each other and then you can see okay how are the people dressed hmm. and what can we see if they have something on their head and maybe some jewelry also is visible and how long is the clothing what is the the figure like you know if it just wrapped into clothing or if the woman maybe has like a really fine figure and it's maybe wearing a belt so mm-hmm. it's creating an, an image of the people so this really helps us to understand how was also the clothing worn for different events yeah that's mostly what we look at and also other textile tools not only spindle words but also from uh, warp weighted looms you know like the uh, the loom weights also are in evidence for textile productions needles of course <laughs> we find some <laughs> so we just try to um, have a look at all the <laughs> all the finds which are yeah a real, a real puzzle tradition. really it trying to find a, all the edge pieces and the corners and the yeah <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> or also in burials where we have a lot of uh, metal we may get the chance to see mineralized textiles uh, onto mm-hmm. metal objects. If, for example, a belt bucket um, is getting rusty over the time, the rust may um, include the textile and preserve it in that way. So if we have some really rich barriers, uh, we also look at the metal objects very closely and yeah, don't scrap off the rust. Yeah. <laughs> <So> <laughs> we can have a look at it. Yeah. yeah. That's mostly all of the, the evidence we try to find. Okay. And you've just reminded me of, I remember there being a lot of hype a year or maybe two, I don't know, time seems to fly so quickly these days, of, <laughs> I think it was Iron Age, might have been Bronze Age, dress that was found and it was reanalyzed and it turned out it would have been colorful. 
Uh, mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> is that so something quite rare? So, I mean, it sounds like it's rare enough to find clothing, but I mean, in yeah. terms of also the, the color and, and things like that. So how, how can we find that sort of stuff? Out? Sure. I mean, it depends when we find textiles most of the time, for example, in middle Europe, we find them mostly in, in wet conditions, for example, done in a bog or something. And, you know, <laughs> because, of right. the, <laughs> <laughs> because of the surrounding um, soil, uh, it will stain the textile really bad. So if you excavate it, most of those textiles, they look brownish something. So mm. not really fancy, actually. And you don't see the actual color with your bare eye. So you have to examine those textiles. And um, with, um, of course, with modern <laughs> technology, we can quite easily um, depict what uh, uh, what chemical residues are there in the textiles mm. and um, from which plant they were dyed. So this um, this is now at the moment common when you when you examine textiles, but if it is, was a textile excavated a couple of years ago, they did not uh, make those uh, analyses. So they reanalyzed it, like you said, uh, oh, and we're seeing, okay, maybe if there is a color hidden, we can only see it by analyzing it. Yeah, but that, that happens quite, quite a lot, actually, with the textile finds. Mm-hmm. We also have some medieval finds here in Berlin and they all looked also very brownish and stuff maybe you can see some yellow and some red but uh, for example blue colors and green colors and stuff um, they will um, they will not survive that long actually mm, okay. but you can you can always, like, always <laughs> most of the time <laughs> you can analyze you heard it here you can always <laughs> always possible <laughs> don't let anyone tell you otherwise <laughs> no. yeah but that, that's that's a fall for those finds and um, mm. if we have a look at the salt mine finds for example it's quite different here because the salt preserved those uh, textiles so well that all the colors uh, are visible and um, they are very in very perfect condition. So I don't have to make up my mind to think, mm, is this brown really brown? Um, I can say, well, yeah, this is brown because oh, I can oh, see okay. red and blue and green and all the other uh, colors really well. That's very cool. And that goes though back to what we were talking about earlier as well, about this perception of the past, of it just being kind of lots of browns. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the whole thing with the the marble statues and how they would have mm-hmm. actually been painted really bright colors. And it just gives such a different view when you see them all brightly painted because mm-hmm. you're so used to see, you know, you think, oh yes, the elegance and things <laughs> of the white marble. And then you see them like gaudily painted bright pink. Yeah. It's like, oh, um, <laughs> I guess it's similar with these. You sort of think, oh yes, the it rustic is- close to home and then actually they're bright green <laughs> yeah there's also one of my you know science communication goal to show people you know what we think people's clothing may have looked like in prehistory and and what i recreate them like on my you know evidence what i uh, research and it's always like a mm, it's so shiny <laughs> it's so psychedelic i don't know if i would wear those color combination in modern times <laughs> i said well it, it was it was fancy back then you know people did wear color combinations of uh, bright blue and and pink and i don't know green and stuff and we say mm, yeah it's nice <laughs> <laughs> because i guess yeah. would it have been a, a sign of kind of wealth or something would it have been that those colors mm-hmm. wouldn't have been available or yeah sure i mean 
clothing and the social status and what we what we want to express with our clothing uh, was kind of different from uh, prehistoric and historic societies um, than we are used to now. So you you would would like to send a message to the people looking at you. Where are you from? What you know? What rank are you in your social community? And uh, mm. how wealthy you are? And yeah, what's up? You know, just without <laughs> talking to the people. Like, mm, okay, I can see the guy from fifty meters because he's so brightly dressed. Yeah, <laughs> he, so he must, must be, be something <laughs> very special. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Sherlock Holmes would have had it easy back then. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> would have known everything. Exactly. I do have one slightly unrelated question that I would still like to ask, even though we're running a bit over, but it's fine. So, of course, you have sewing needles, but you also have other kinds of needles that have to do with clothing production, like knitting or crochet, or I believe it's called null binding. Mm -hmm. Um, When would that have begun? Would that have been after sewing? Um, kind of maybe <laughs> okay good that's fine um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a good question actually because all those specialized textile craft i would say is very interesting i was looking at some needles like with a hole but they are not so fine but very broad and thick from the from the bronze age in estonia when i was um, having some excavations there mm-hmm. and i had those those needles in my hand and i thought what are those used for you know we are in the bronze age in estonia it's ah, you know we don't have knitting at the time you know this is not a, a needle suitable for sewing if it's making maybe nets okay yeah it's a net needle could be but you know but what and i thought also about now bending because now bending is a very very old technique to have like a crutched slash knitting appearance and um, but it's um, way older and uh, we have some evidence also from egypt very old finds also from the iron age and antique so it could also have been that uh, now bending was um, common in europe also in that time bronze age and iron age um, but we have very 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 small evidence mm. Uh, for knitting, knitting is quite new. So I know some some archaeological finds also from London uh, and from Germany from the 14th and 15th century, so Middle Ages. This is quite quite late, but it probably evolved out of knoll binding and crocheting. So these are just you know maybe techniques and evolutions which follow uh, one after another. Yeah, but. Mm, we can really say because like crocheting and null bending are mostly used for smaller textiles. So not for clothing, clothing your whole body, but maybe just for mittens or just for socks uh, or just for, for a hat or something. So maybe this kind of technique was evolving, um, you know, next to sewing techniques and practices. So we don't actually know. We need to get this, you know, time travel uh, bus sorted so that we can go back and have a look and see uh, see if it's all sorted out. (laughs) Okay. Well, I think uh, we're going to have another quick break so that uh, everybody can uh, top up their tea. But uh, not to worry, we will be back soon. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. 
Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Spread the word. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney. Make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusion supply. See store or jcp.com for details. Oh, oh, oh. O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Welcome back, everyone. I hope that your teacups are fuller and the biscuit jar is emptier. So, Ronya, of course, we did already introduce you in the first section. We talked a little bit about your research, but maybe we can go into a bit more detail with that because it sounds really fascinating. So your current research, as we mentioned, looks at Iron Age textile finds specifically from salt mines. Can you tell us more? Uh, yes, I would love to tell you more about those. Uh, right. So my, my PhD is now dealing with uh, Iron Age textiles from the salt mine Dürnberg in uh, Austria, which is uh, uh, south of uh, Salzburg, maybe some of you may may know this area, because right next to the Dürnberg, there's also the salt mine Hallstatt, uh, which is very famous because Hallstatt um, is also the name of a Iron Age time period and because of the uh, burials next to the oh. salt mine. It is very famous and it was also published um, a few years ago by Karina Grömer. She was uh, dealing with those textiles from from the salt mine. And Hachat is a bit older because we have uh, earliest textiles from Hachat from the Bronze Age uh, into the Iron Age. So this is uh, uh, a very exceptional, um, fine place. Mm. And uh, a few kilometers away, there's a salt mine Dürnberg, um, which is a bit later, so uh, middle to late Iron Age. And those excavations were still going on. Uh, from the last 20 years and those textiles were building up <laughs> into boxes in the museum there uh-huh. and um, as we are not so many textile archaeologists in in the german-speaking countries of uh, germany and austria we had to wait for my master thesis to be finished <laughs> so <laughs> i could start now with my phd on those textiles and i'm really thrilled about this because those salt mine textiles they really give us a huge picture of uh, textile craft about dyeing and sewing and uh, reusing and recycling textiles and everything that you can think of I can do with those textiles. Amazing. And because we also have like Hachet and Dürnberg and some kind of a connection uh, laying next to each other and also like it, maybe people left Hachet and went to Dürnberg, we also can see a difference in, in fashion maybe about uh, how they may changed their dyeing techniques from Hallstatt to Dürnberg because they're just a few hundred years uh, in between them and just have a really close look um, at Iron Age uh, textile productions where we usually just paint a really broad picture of just one big period. But there we can just separate them, early Iron Age and late Iron Age, and then have a look 
at those great textiles. So that's my task, mostly, you know, documenting all the textiles, you know, making nice pictures, making microscopy of uh, those finds, finding out um, what are the patterns like, uh, what's the weave type like, um, what's the quality, you know, the fineness of those textiles. So everything that's really just basic, actually. Mm-hmm. but really necessary to get a, a good overview um, about all all those textiles. And of course, the question uh, behind this, um, like we also have this small micro region where people, we have the settlement, so where the people lived, we have mm-hmm. the burial right next to it, uh, where the people are buried, and we have the salt mine where the people worked all the time. So just, just really small area on top of a mountain (laughs) where the people lived and um, we can also have a look at the textile tools which um, we find there in the settlements and we can have also look at the textiles in the burials and maybe um, compare them with the textiles in the salt mine because the question in the salt mine is always what were those textiles used for Mm -hmm. but they are most of the time secondary used as some kind of rags or maybe mm-hmm. some protection for the hands of the people working in the salt mines. Uh, just some, I don't know, wipes or something or mm. if some some uh, sleeve got ripped off during work and just trash and they, you know, throw it <laughs> in the corner and it was just, you know, trash. So we also have some difficulties to, to see what was the actual use of the textile in the first place. But, you know, that doesn't matter actually that much for me mm-hmm. as I just want to show all those bright colors and all those patterns yeah. and all this, you know, all the information that we usually don't have in a such closed environment. Yeah. And is it, because I assume these are sort of woven uh, textiles, so are mm-hmm. they made from wool or linen or... Right. So um, most of the textiles are um, made out of wool. Mm-hmm. Um, we also see those in Hallstatt, but uh, the Dürrenberg textiles also have a, a quite amount of uh, linen uh, textiles, which is very unusual because we thought linen was not so much used in the Iron Age in Austria because we don't have them so much in Hallstatt. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, of course, is one one point of a, maybe a change for those societies that they may have used linen. But the question is, they are living on top of a mountain. So where does the linen come from? Mm. They were not able to um, cultivate it themselves. So, of course, the people living and working in the salt mine were very rich for the time because they had the salt and they traded the salt for a lot of different things. Um, So maybe also a textile trade uh, was part of the salt trade actually Mm -hmm. but this is also a point which we can most of the time no longer you know see because of the very few amounts of textiles we have and if they get traded or not and what are the specialties of those traded textiles you know why why are textiles traded Hmm. if they can you know make them themselves maybe but if they can't make them themselves like the linen textiles maybe they are imported Wow. Okay. So then I guess that gives, yeah, ideas as to communication with other Mm -hmm. societies or other communities. And uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And have you found any needles? Uh, Not that I know of, but I may have a look at the finds myself (laughs) (laughs) Uh, because also in the publications uh, you know 
not always uh, textile uh, people are having a look on those tools mm. so they may get interpreted uh, differently or maybe you know the pictures are misleading so i will definitely have a look at those finds um, in the museum by myself just look through, <laughs> through everything <laughs> and, and yeah, because this happens quite also with uh, with textiles uh, maybe when they are attached to metal objects they are not seen as textile Right, um, because okay. it's just a metal object. So, uh, re-evaluating and you know have a look at everything is always yeah very mm. important. I definitely agree with that. I, that's basically all I did <laughs> for my PhD. So yeah, um, yeah. and um, so as you mentioned, you're doing your PhD research. You did your master's research on something similar on this topic as well. Or? Right. I also did my master's on Iron Age textiles, but they were from uh, Slovenia, from Hallstatt oh, okay. uh, period uh, graves. Um, I was examining uh, three different uh, sites. Those textiles were stored uh, in Vienna in the National History Museum Vienna because some. Um, these were finds from old excavations from mm. uh, from the 19th century. Oh, wow. <laughs> and okay. uh, those excavations were carried out, uh, maybe, you know, in a very different way. Yes. <laughs> we would do them now. So there's literally no documentation oh, at all. <laughs> um, and those textiles were transferred from Slovenia to Austria because it was the Austrian-Hungarian uh, monarchy back then. And um, so they were uh, in Vienna and I worked there on those textiles. And also, like you said, now re-evaluating everything yes. <laughs> I see, have a look at all the metal objects and uh, yeah, find some really nice textiles. And um, even if they are from very old excavations and even if they were restored in the not so nice way mm. um, I could I could learn so much from them and I could gain a lot of information and very interesting insights also you know dealing with whole burial structures and everything um, oh. if I if you would like I can uh, tell you an example if we have some time left yes, yes, yes please do <laughs> for example um, this is always a thing I, I want to tell there was a burial mound and in those burial mounds uh, multiple persons were buried and um, it's quite common for those uh, Hallstatt period graves that uh, for wealthier people, there was also a horse, a horse buried next to them or on top of them or some something, you know, close to the uh, buried mm -hmm. person. And I was having a, a very rich burial with um, a lot of textiles uh, attached to metal objects. And, and there were a few metal rings just some rings, you know, flying around in the rain. Mm -hmm. And uh, attached to those rings uh, was some kind of fur. Oh. So I just not only look at the textiles, but also other organic material, for example, fur or leather, of course. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were examining the, the fur and I said, mm, it, it looks quite like a horse fur. And mm -hmm. I was looking through the documentation and um, it said that half a meter above the human uh, a horse was also uh, buried uh -huh. and but those rings were said to be found inside the human burial hmm. um, so we did some more examinations and 
of course, the National History Museum Vienna has a lot of, uh, you know, also recent um, zoological finds or nice zoological apartment. <laughs> so I was I was digging. So you made some new the, friends. <laughs> yeah, digging in the in the animal hide department <laughs> underneath and was searching. Uh, okay, zebra, zebra, giraffe, giraffe, all their horses. Uh, so um, I was looking at a Przewalski horse hide. Oh, wow. And I was taking some samples from those uh, horse hides, uh, from different parts of the horse, from the head, from the ah. back, from the shoulders, from the legs and stuff. Because uh, um, even if it's from the same animal, um, the hair structure might look different. Ah, okay, yeah. Mm -hmm. So we were examining them under the microscope. Uh, we used an uh, electronic microscope for this. And so we compared those with the, with the archaeological finds. And... Uh, interesting is that the the Przewalski horse is a very old um, old um, horse. They're um, the ones with the really sticky up manes, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. So they're very cream color, but but black hair and yes, um, yeah, 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 yeah. And like the the structure of the um, Przewalski horse hair from the head correlated really well with the, the hair from the uh, metal rings from from the find. So mm. what I was thinking about was mm, those horses were also buried like uh, fully dressed, I would say. So mm -hmm. they had their harness and maybe the saddle and maybe some, you know, some the other stuff. Their hair or something. Uh, yeah, yeah. So decorated <laughs> because like the horse was like more an accessory or some yeah, kind of statue, yeah. uh, you know, statues. Um, symbol for uh, this human and I thought those those could be really well part of the uh, horse harness which was actually attached to the horse but those burial mounds as you may also know they tend to collapse you know there are cavities right. inside okay. and if the if the cavity was uh, built out of wood maybe it will you know rot and it will collapse and parts of the horse may fall into the grave of mm. the human <laughs> so this hint of finding horse hair on the metal ring inside the human grave opens us a very plausible picture of how the burial situation may have been. So, hmm. yeah. Yeah. That's just from so a little ring. Just from a little ring <laughs> with a bit of horse hair attached to it. And I think that's that's so interesting and so good and because we don't have so so much documentation from from those uh, excavations it's yeah. really necessary to look at every small bit we can find yeah yeah and indeed shows the importance of looking not just at the kind of big important things but also looking at the the small things and looking at yeah. sort of reassessing what something could have been and uh, mm -hmm. yeah yeah, definitely approved. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, yes, yeah, so as we mentioned, you're now doing a PhD. Now, I was a bit unsure because I saw you mention the other day, congratulations again, that your funding has now yeah. come in. So you're a funded PhD. Um, now. <laughs> so were you before working unfunded or uh, how did that work? Mm, yeah, I started my PhD in 2020 and yeah. uh, we wanted to get funded actually quite fast. But as you all know, in 2020, mm, uh, a pandemic happened. Yeah. made hit us. <laughs> um, and so the, the, the funding situation also for um, uh, archaeologists changed rapidly mm. and um, the funding was not so easily yeah, for us anymore. Mm. Um, and through the last three years, you know, I worked 
and I just try to live and survive yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, find maybe some time next to it to uh, prepare my PhD. But, you know, my research, it is necessary that I travel to Austria and mm -hmm. have a look at the textiles by myself. Um, so having the time and the money to travel to Austria back and forth, back and forth was not something I could achieve with funding myself. So yeah. Um, for these kind of projects, if you need to travel and if you need to spend some time somewhere else, uh, funding is necessary. It's just the way it is. Um, yeah. I have my, 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 my family here in Berlin. I want to live here. Uh, you know, I always come back. Um, that's totally fine. But yeah, I was starting to, I think last year, I was starting to send out um, my, uh, what's it called? Uh, The applications? Or? The applications, yeah. Mm -hmm. I was sending out the applications to uh, a bunch of, uh, yeah, you know, funders. And then mm -hmm. I hoped for the best. And uh, of course, archaeology is not that uh, common. So you have uh, a small amount yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. of possibilities in, in Germany. It's the way. Um, uh, so I had like eight or nine um, applications um, and one came back positive <laughs> that's all you need <laughs> oh, that's all you need but it's the thrill and it's it's a roller coaster of emotions and it's of course it always is the question can i achieve my phd if i'm not funded and the answer was always no okay. and if i didn't get a funding this would have been the end to it yeah, yeah. so yeah. you can see on on This is such a close call, actually. Yeah. Okay. Well, congratulations again, then. I mean, that's thank fantastic. You, thank you. I'm really thankful. So. Yeah. No, because it's one of those things I always get questions about, you know, how, how is the PhD process go and how do you apply for mm -hmm. things? And so I, I try to show different variations. But so I know that some people are able to do research without the funding. But like you say, if you have to travel a lot, I can imagine it's, it's different. It's also difficult in, in the European countries, right? Because like in Germany, if you're a PhD student at a university, you know, you're not automatically part of the of the staff. You don't get a job there. Oh, okay. you know, there are very limited job offers mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of PhD students. So mm. this is this is not something you get just to be a PhD student. But I also thought about going to Estonia again because I was working in Estonia um, quite a long time. And so the situation there is quite different. If you're a PhD student, you get a, uh, just a regular amount of, uh, you know, money monthly, and mm -hmm. then you can maybe <laughs> get some funding next to it. Mm, so okay. mm -hmm. you are not just um, depending on funding like in Germany, actually. Yeah. Okay. Because indeed in the Netherlands, it's the same generally, mm -hmm. of course, with my contract, it was different, but generally if you managed to get a PhD position at a university which has something associated with it then you're treated as an employee kind of thing mm -hmm. so it's sort of a, as part of it but then also people have there's external funding agencies but then I know a lot of people who have also just got the PhD position but then they're almost like a guest researcher if that makes mm -hmm. sense so then and then um, yeah they don't have funding unfortunately but anyway I thought it was just interesting to show the I always try to, to show the variation that different jobs can take in archaeology and how it works. So, uh, yeah, I think your your path where you've got has definitely been a lot of work, it sounds like, but uh, yes. hopefully it pays off. 
I hope so too. Yeah. yeah. And so part of that work was uh, working at an open air museum. Um, you mentioned before, so sort of living mm-hmm. history and all that kind of thing. So what were you, I, am I right in thinking you were quite managerial? Like you did something quite an intense job there, no? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, yes, I, I, I work or like, Mm, we have a, a a museum village here in Berlin. It's called uh, uh, Düppel, so Open Air mm-hmm. Museum uh, Düppel, which is a recreated uh, medieval village in the southern part of Berlin, and is a part of our city uh, history and heritage and stuff. So this mm-hmm. is actually uh, quite nice, um, also to uh, uh, to visit the village. And we uh, we exist for quite a long time. So the museum was founded in 1975. And it was first only an association and um, all the people working there were doing the work for free, just, oh, wow. uh, you know, as their hobby and want to show mm. uh, the Berlin <laughs> people what their history was like. Mm-hmm. So in the past few years, uh, the situation changed a bit. We, um, we are now attached to the uh, Stadtmuseum, so the City Museum of okay. uh, Berlin, mm-hmm. and they manage all the, all the public outreach and uh, you mm-hmm. know all the guides who are having tours through the museum and stuff and um, the association is still existing and um, is mostly doing a living history on the weekends to show people what it is like to work and live uh, in the middle ages because we have some houses and we have gardens and we have fields and uh, we can show the visitors uh, what what medieval life would have looked like mm-hmm. so i i started there also in 2020 and i am now the um, chair chairwoman of the of this association association oh, okay. also for the next uh, two years so i also just volunteer right. <laughs> in this museum and uh, yeah try to live my craft yeah, <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, do all the living history stuff I want to do but also you know mm, manage to give some uh, scientific input and to also work to be better and uh, have some more historical accuracy um, mm. when dealing uh, with uh, living history and stuff because of if you're just doing it you know, just for fun outside of a museum, you may have your own standards. But I think if you're um, doing this in a museum and people are paying for it, um, your um, historical accuracy um, should be quite a high standard. So mm. I'm I'm working to achieve this over the time. <laughs> well, hopefully. Well, and it makes it more fun as well, right? Because you can really yeah. uh, talk about the history of it and the archaeology of it and, and it yeah. makes it a bit more, I mean, maybe I'm you know, biased. <laughs> and, the, and the Middle Ages are quite uh, effective if you want to research them so yeah. if i'm coming back from my iron age textiles and say oh no i have no source <laughs> i go into the no medieval idea. times and it's, oh, it's so easy you know you have to look at some pictures and everything's there <laughs> so, it's um, so motivating <laughs> yeah i can imagine no but it sounds sounds like good fun sounds like you have a lot of different uh, cool projects going on um yes. And so my final question was, um, for anyone who's listening in who might be thinking, oh, textile archaeology, that sounds, you know, kind of fun, kind of cool. Would you have any advice or suggestions for people who might be interested in going down that path? 
Oh, yes. Uh, we need textile archaeologists. Uh, they are very needed because, uh, as I said earlier, we're just a few people in Germany, uh, just a few people all of Europe. And I think what I love about this, this specialty is that we are all so connected to each other. We all know each other. So we see us at conferences and, you know, workshops and we are mm-hmm. all connected through different small projects. But this is also very needed because textile archaeology is quite the new specialty. We mm-hmm. need to do some basic research. We have to figure out what methods are working and which are not. So we are not just like just basic methods I can, you know, put on those textiles. No, it's always something new. You have always uh, new work to do and to connect and to talk to each other and to evaluate if this is all working out is very, very important. So if you're into textile archaeology, don't hide <laughs> Please come out. Come uh, into the light. <laughs> get in touch with any of those people. This is, uh, there are small hierarchies, you know, I, I love that we are also uh, a lot of women, <laughs> so ah, no. we have to tell it like it is. Uh, <laughs> uh, and it's a very nice working atmosphere if we're meeting um, each other. And it's it's a great topic. We all have a lot of passion for what we do. And we all know it's very hard to work on textile archaeology because it is not seen at the moment in the different, yeah, parts of archaeology if you want to work somewhere they say textile archaeology what we don't need that and mm. I say, well we we actually need that because textiles come up every week yeah and um, the colleagues don't know what to do with them that's mm. that's totally fine because you know they have other specialties yeah but to we need to work bring a specialist yeah <laughs> yeah to be seen actually to be heard <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. so um yeah if you want to learn textile archaeology please do it the universities do most of the time do not teach textile archaeology so my way was also to uh, to find a text psychologist, which was Karina Kröver, <laughs> and to um, to learn everything from her. Yeah. yeah. So this is Good. most of the time the way to go until we infiltrate the university. That's the goal, you know. <laughs> well, it sounds like you've uh, got a lot to get going on with then uh, if you're, you know, starting a rebellion. So uh, <laughs> I think uh, that marks the end of our tea break. Probably time to go back to work. Thank you so, so, so much for joining me today, Ronnie. It was really interesting uh, to speak to you and to learn learn all about your research. Thank you, too. And uh, yeah, if anyone wants to find out more about uh, Ronnie's work or about needles, prehistoric clothing, other clothing, do check the show notes uh, on the podcast homepage. I will put all of their information on there. I hope that you enjoyed our journey today. If you want to help support this show and all of the other amazing series that form the Archaeology Podcast Network, you can become a member. You will be helping us to create even more amazing content, such as this wonderful episode, and will also have exclusive access to ad-free episodes and bonus content like our quarterly online seminars looking at different topics within archaeology. Our latest one looked at maritime archaeology, for example. For more information, check out the homepage at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. I hope that you enjoyed our journey today. If you did, make sure to like, follow, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you next month for another episode of Tea Break Time Travel. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland. 
DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. And was edited by Chris Webster, Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.